Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your son and for uh, just your undying love for us. Lord God, I just, I pray that you would move among us this morning, move beyond what I have to say uh, and beyond whatever I could say, God, to just work in us and in our hearts and turn our eyes again to you. God, you know how we need you, uh, how we come this morning. I don't know where anyone's coming from, but I just know that we are people who are prone to fail, to stumble, to fall. Uh, We're prone to discouragement, to distress, to anxiety, to, uh, yeah, just to feel, uh, to be led astray, God, from from who you are and from your gospel. And so I pray that this would be a time for us to refocus on you. And I pray that through this passage we would see just a fresh picture of who you are uh, and that you're a God worth knowing. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 3. We're continuing our series uh, in John called God in Our Neighborhood. And what's cool about this gospel is that it's all about Jesus' identity as God. Uh, and if you've been tracking along, long, uh, you've seen how uh, God in the person of Jesus Christ, God eternal, has come to earth. That this is God living and walking among us. And he doesn't come like you would expect with all sorts of fanfare uh, as a king to rule over the world, but he comes humbly as a servant. Uh, and we've just seen that, that he is walking around, and it's like this great secret, this great hidden truth that Jesus is, is moving in and among and around and having conversations with people, uh, and, and it's like they have no idea who he really is. And what's cool, uh, I know I said that a few times, but it's just there's so much that's cool, is that he is, there's these story after story in this gospel, of these interactions that people have with Jesus. Uh, and a lot of them are like individual one-on-one. And what happens is they go in uh, to this interaction one way, Uh, And then something happens, and they just come out completely changed, completely different. And that's one of the stories that we're looking at this morning. But as we as we see these stories again and again, uh, you see one that Jesus really is God. That this man who who is here, who who is doing this ministry, he really is God. And two, that God, rather than being aloof or judgmental, has come to his people, and he's come to change everything for them. And so this morning we're looking at. The story uh, of Nicodemus, this is a story about a Pharisee or a religious leader, uh, a teacher of the Jews, coming to meet with Jesus. And as much as we can tell, this meeting is one-on-one. It is private. There's nobody else mentioned in it. Uh, And there's something about the apparent privacy of this interaction that just highlights it. It's like Nicodemus the Pharisee is coming to discover some hidden truth about Jesus, and we all, you know, as an audience, get to like look in and see what is God going to say to this man? What does he have to show him and to reveal him about who he is? And so uh, with us witnessing that, what John is showing us through this story, and the big idea this morning is that is this. It's that our pride blinds us to who Jesus really is and to all that he has in store for us. And so in this story, you have Nicodemus standing before God, but he cannot see it. He's like one of the teachers of Israel, and yet he cannot recognize his own God. There is so much glory and wonder contained right in front of him, but he wouldn't know it from another Tuesday. And I believe that part of why John is writing this is to remind us that there is so much glory contained in and around the things that God is doing in us and in our lives and in the church around us, and that we have a tendency to look right at all of those things, but to not recognize any of it, to not see any of it. And this ultimately comes from us thinking too much of ourselves and too 
little of God and allowing pride and, and cares in our life to blind us to who God really is and all that he has in store for us. And so as we move through the text, I want you to be asking, where in my life might pride be blinding me to who Jesus really is and to what he has in store for me? And so as we move through the text, uh, my outline is interesting, uh, to say the least, and that's because this, this passage is really cool, and I got to read it in Greek earlier this week with some other guys, and I don't really know Greek that well, but they did, so it was cool. But there's like a lot going on, and, uh, and so this outline, I'm, I broke it up into three chunks because on the one hand, it's, it's, it's talking about, uh, there's, there's, on the one hand, there's what's actually going on in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, what, what's actually happening, and on the other hand, there's like what they're, what they're talking about. Right, and so you have the the topic of the conversation here, but then you also have like what's really happening and what Jesus is really showing Nicodemus, and how John is the author is showing us what Jesus is showing Nicodemus. And so, uh, I'm, uh, my outline is basically this: we're gonna we're gonna look first at uh, this being this abstract theological discussion, and then in part two, it's gonna turn personal towards Nicodemus, and then in part three, we're gonna see how it really all points back to Jesus, and that's kind of what's happening in the conversation. Uh, but then the actual points and the meaning that we can draw out of what they're saying uh, is going to be kind of just sprinkled in throughout there too, and I've got three points with that as well. So if that's confusing, uh, at the beginning of each point, we're just going to say this is kind of the next section, and then kind of by the end of each point, I'm going to say this is what's going on here. This is what we can take away from this, right? So let's jump in. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So who is Nicodemus? It says he's a ruler of the Jews. Uh, Basically, Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the highest position that you can have other than just being the high priest. Uh, the, The Jewish Sanhedrin was about 70 Jews, uh, with one high priest over them, and these were all the guys that were kind of ruling over, they're like, sort of like the Supreme Court of Israel, the commentators say. And so, on the one hand, you could have like a Jewish leader or ruler at like the local synagogue level or the city level, uh, but then you got someone like Nicodemus who is over all of Israel in that sense. And so, he's one of 70, basically. And so, it's about as high of a position as you have, and he comes to Jesus apparently alone, and he comes at night. And so already, just from these details, John is showing us some things about this interaction that he doesn't even really have to say that it seems like Nicodemus, is, he stands out from what we've seen about other Pharisees. Generally, the Pharisees, these religious leaders in Israel, are very opposed to Jesus. And they look down on him and they think, man, this guy, he's uneducated, he's untrained, he, he doesn't have the wealth and the pomp and the, the prestige that we have. And so we wouldn't respect him, and yet he has this massive following. And so it's like they can't ignore him, but instead they're coming and they're trying to, in some way or somehow, paint him in a bad light or make him look bad or, or perhaps expose him for being a fraud. But the reality is that Jesus is actually God. Jesus is actually the real, true, legit teacher, and it's these guys that are, in some ways, the frauds or the people who aren't actually really knowing God. And so Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night, and so it just seems like he's interested and invested. That right before this passage, it talks about Jesus doing these, these miracles, uh, these signs, and he's healing people, and everyone's amazed at what they're seeing. And Nicodemus is one of those people. He's amazed at what he's seeing Jesus do. And he's, it's like he wants to see more. 
it's like he's been exposed to Christ and he wants to come and see more. And so he's taking a risk because, you know, if, if the other, you know, Jews saw what he was doing and the, the credence he was given to this guy, they would probably kick him out. He would probably lose face. Maybe he wouldn't even have his position anymore. I don't really know how it all worked, but I know that later on in John, he sticks up for Jesus for a second, just very, very briefly in a conversation and immediately gets shut down. They're just like, what? No, that's ridiculous. He just kind of like hints at the fact that maybe we should hear Jesus out. And they're like, no, you're ridiculous. Like, get out of here. And so he's, he's here. He's taking a risk. He's coming to Jesus at night. Um, and he calls him rabbi, so he's respectful of Jesus, right? He's, he's, he's coming to him, one teacher to another. And so I think if I'm Nicodemus and I'm looking at this, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm, here I am, this member of the Sanhedrin, but I want to come and actually respect this guy. And the fact that he calls him rabbi is like, it's, it's very respectful that someone from his position would say that. Uh, and so he's respectful of Jesus, but he's not fully and appropriately humble because he doesn't recognize that he's actually coming before his God. And I think if he knew that, he would come very differently. And so there's something about Nicodemus here. He just can't leave this alone. He has to know more. He's fascinated. And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And he's expecting to get more information from Jesus. Uh, but he doesn't ask anything directly, but Jesus answers him. And basically, Jesus is seeing Nicodemus' interest, and that's what he's speaking to in his answer as he answers a question Nicodemus doesn't even ask. And Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what kind of man Nicodemus is completely, but I can tell you this. If I was in his shoes, if I was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, I would look at Jesus and I'd be like, okay, come on. Like, there's no one here. Like, you don't have to do that. Like, are you serious? Like, what do you mean born again? Where is this coming from? Like, I miss... Do you know who I am? Like, I know the scriptures. Like, you can just speak plainly to me. Like, let's have a dialogue about, like, Isaiah or about, like, the Torah or whatever. You can talk to me straight. What is this about being born again? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. And so that's what I would do. And so I, I just, I'd be like, dude, really? What, what are you saying? I, and so, uh, but Nicodemus, he's not here to make fun of Jesus. He's not here to ridicule him. And so whatever you read next, understand he's not trying to ridicule Jesus but perhaps he's frustrated. Perhaps he's thinking, why would you say this? What, what does this mean? What are you getting at? Just speak plainly. And so verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so I think the way I read this is Nicodemus, he's not trying to make fun of Jesus, but he's just, he's just repeating what Jesus said. Like, look, this is what you said. What does this mean? Like, surely this can't mean what you're, what you're saying it is. So why don't you just tell me what you actually mean? Just give me a straight answer. Like, I'm here, I'm sticking my neck out. And so verse 5, Jesus answers. He says to him again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so, wow, that's like really cryptic, really confusing. I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I would get confused reading that. I had discussions with people reading the Greek, like, what is Jesus actually saying here? How do you interpret this? And so uh, looking into it, here's, here's what we can now understand looking back and, and seeing this, what Nicodemus couldn't see, but I think what we can see is clear. The word that's translated again when he says born again, Jesus is he's, he's kind of giving a, a double meaning or using, some might call it a pun in Greek, because this word can also mean from above. And so what he's saying, he could, he could either be saying, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. And so in addition to the confusion about 
where being born comes into all of this, you also have the question, the ambiguity of whether he means born again or born from above. And so Nicodemus obviously understands it as again, because he says, how can someone be born a second time? Uh, but as Jesus starts talking about being born of the Spirit, it becomes clearer and clearer that he's, he's at least talking about being born from above. And then as we go further on, we see really he's talking about both. And so he's talking about a, a second birth, being born again, but it's a birth that is from above. All right? And so, but what does he mean then by being born of water and the Spirit? What is, what is he talking about? So most commentators would agree that spiritual birth is, is this new life in Christ, and so that's the spiritual side of it, that, you know, being born in spirit is like, okay, he's talking about this new life that we have in Christ. But what does he mean by being born of water? Where does that fit into this? And so there's some, there's some more variance in how different people understand that. Uh, on the one hand, some people might say, I think he's referring to natural birth. Um, like, you know, when, when the mother's water breaks. And that's, that's just referring to, so you have to be naturally born, and then you have to also be spiritually born. And they would look at the following verse, verse 6, because they would say it's parallel, and he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and then that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And really, all throughout this passage, you kind of have this parallel structure where you've got, like, this earthly thing, and then, like, this heavenly thing, or this physical thing, and then, like, this spiritual thing. This, you know, simple thing, and then this higher thing. Uh, and they would say that's similar to the parallel structure. But if you look at the Greek... The parallel structure really is stronger with verse 3, uh, where he's talking about you must be born again or from above. And then he says the same thing. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, and, so, and then there's also just not much of a precedent in other places in the Bible or literature at the time of, of using language like that to talk about natural birth. So I'm not personally convinced by that. I'm just going to go through two more, right? The second one is that it could mean baptism. And that's kind of how I've usually read it, is I think water, baptism, right? I got it, right? Like, that's what I always think whenever I see water in the New Testament. It's like, that's probably what that means. Um, problem with that is Nicodemus wouldn't really have a precedent for Christian baptism. Like, that, that wasn't really a thing for, for Nicodemus. And later on, Jesus is going to say, you should understand this stuff. And it wouldn't really make sense that Jesus would say that to Nicodemus if he doesn't if he, you know, if, if that's later. And so really that sounds like that's an understanding that comes later. Perhaps there could be some secondary illusion that John's making to baptism, but that doesn't seem like it's the focus of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And so that brings me to my understanding, which you all have been waiting for, of what I think this is really, really getting at. And I, it seems to me that the best understanding is that Jesus here, just like in verse 3, where he said, you must be born again or from above, that he's also still referring to one birth here. You must be born, but instead of saying from above, he's saying of water in the Spirit. And it's this one birth that's of water in the Spirit. And where, what does that mean? What is that alluding to? Well, it seems Jesus is alluding to multiple instances in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, in which similar language is used to describe the future cleansing and transformation of Israel. Uh, and I think the most prominent or notable passage for that is Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, where God is saying this through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so the point that I want you to see there is that this giving of the spirit and this cleansing with water are often talked about together. Uh, and that they're things that come together. And the fact that Jesus is later going to say to Nicodemus, you should understand these things implies that he is looking to something from the Old Testament that is the reason for why he's saying this and for, and for what he's talking about. 
Uh, and, and the idea from this passage is that what people need, this is the point here, what people really need is to be cleaned from sin and to be transformed. That I have guilt in my life, that I've done things wrong, and that I owe some sort of a moral debt to God because of those things. So if you do something wrong against someone, then you, you owe them a debt. It, there's justice has to be served in some way if you wrong someone. And whenever we do things wrong, we're wronging God because we're taking this life that he's given us, but we're using it in a way that instead of glorifying him, is instead um, hurting ourselves and others and, and taking away from who he is as God. And so we need to be cleansed from that. And at the same time, we need to be transformed because I have this nature that is just inclined to do what is wrong. And everyone in here should know what that is. Have you ever felt like you knew what was right, but you didn't do it and you did what was wrong instead? Show of hands. Yep, I'm seeing some hands. Good, right? We all know what that is, to know what is wrong and what is right and to choose what is wrong. And that's this broken nature. That's not right. You have this feeling in you. That's not how that should be. And so what, what Jesus is getting at here is that that's a nature that you have, and because you have that nature, you need God's help. You need a new nature. And that's what this idea of pouring his spirit out is on you, is that he's going to give you this new nature that is going to instead incline your heart instead of to do wrong, but instead to do what is right, and to instead want to love God and love the people around you and glorify him. So what's the point? Jesus is saying, if anyone is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, they need to be cleansed and they need to be transformed. But that need is so great that it takes being born again, born from above. It's like a new life, a new identity, a new person that you're going to become. It's total and complete transformation. And so then in verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh, meaning regular physical birth, is flesh. So physical birth produces physical life. And the only way we get physical life is from physical birth. That's what the point. So if verse 6 is confusing, that's what he's saying. The only way that we get physical life is from physical birth. And likewise, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And in the same way, he's saying, uh, he's talking about God's Spirit. God is the one who knows how to give spiritual life. And the only way to get spiritual life is from spiritual birth. And likewise, therefore, physical birth cannot, the physical cannot produce the spiritual birth. And, and if God is going to give us his spirit, if we're going to somehow get this new nature, it can't just be, what am I going to do to get to heaven? I can't just somehow give myself this divine nature that is so foreign to me. I need God's help. I need God to come in and pour out that spirit, that nature on me. And he's saying that much should be clear to you from the Old Testament and from the prophets because you have this whole history of Israel completely failing to follow God's rules and his laws for them. And then you have this whole section of the Bible that a lot of us love to skip, if we're honest, but the prophets where themes that are in the prophets are pointing to this hope for Israel. And one of the themes of hope is that God is going to clean them and pour out his spirit on them. And so what does this tell us? Jesus is answering this question, how do I get to heaven? And now this is at the end of our first chunk. It's our longest chunk, so don't worry. Don't roll your eyes at me. Uh, and, and this is our first point, and that is to be with God in heaven, we need to be completely and profoundly transformed. And the reason that's a point here is because that's something that is lost on Nicodemus. Nicodemus is coming to God, and he's thinking, man, I'm one of the Sanhedrin. Like, he doesn't seem like he's overly arrogant, but at the same time, He's not coming to Christ expecting to have to be completely transformed, to have to completely uh, undo everything that he's ever done and have, and have someone else come in and completely recreate him from the bottom up. He's looking for a, a, maybe a minor fix, if anything, or, or perhaps more likely just affirmation 
that he is right. But up to this point, he's just been talking about uh, what was, and it's an abstract uh, theological discussion. It's what one would have to do to get to heaven, because certainly I don't need that. But what Jesus is saying is that to get to heaven, there needs to be complete transformation. Uh, we need to be completely and profoundly transformed. <clears throat> and so what we should have then when we come to Christ is this longing for cleansing, this longing for transformation. That if you read the Old Testament, what I think, the if there was a perfect person living in Israel, uh, what the, well, I should say, uh, somebody who at least perfectly understands the Old Testament, they should be at the time of Christ longing for and waiting for God to provide some means of cleansing and transformation for them and for their heart. They should be looking at their life and saying, God, I need you to help me, to transform me, and prime for Christ to come and offer that. And so likewise, we should always in our lives have a longing for further cleansing and transformation. That if you're already in Christ, that means that at, at, a, at, a, at a great cosmic level, God has done that for you that you are justified in the eyes of Christ, but at the same time that, that he is working in your life to, to work out that new life and to, to further cleanse you and make you more and more like him. And so what if I don't feel that longing? Because Nicodemus doesn't seem to, right? So here he is, he's, he's seeking God out, he's taking this risk, but it doesn't feel like he, he fully feels this need to be transformed. And so I think what we can do, though, is if, if, if we can just be asking God for a glimpse of who he is, that makes us appreciate that gap between uh, where I'm at and where God is at and where heaven is, and to say, God, I need your help. That would just give me a feeling of, of helplessness and a feeling of longing. So when I recognize the, the, the size of that gap and how great God is and his love for me, then that's something that I want. So I'm just going to move on to point two here. So our second chunk is where this discussion goes from being this abstract theological discussion and it becomes personal to Nicodemus. So verse 7, Jesus says to him, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now before this, he was saying anyone, someone. Now he's saying you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so there's this turning here from the, the abstract, the theoretical, to the personal, right? Up to this point, Nicodemus, this member of the Sanhedrin, understand, he's one of the top 70, like, from a human perspective, he is one of the top 70 followers of God in the world, of, of the God of Israel, as much as they can tell, because he is here where this is God's people, this is Israel, this is where they have the temple, and he's one of those 70, right? So you would just think, man, this guy, he must have it figured out. He must have it going on. Uh, he's been, to get there, he'd have been studying scriptures for years. He'd have memorized huge sections. He'd, he'd have to have a commendable, at least to, to some, a commendable character and lifestyle, at least relatively speaking. And so up to this point, Nicodemus has been talking about what other people have to do to get to heaven, but not, not about himself. But Jesus, responding to Nicodemus, is, is saying, you, you must be born again. This new birth I'm talking about, I'm talking about you. And so he says, you shouldn't be surprised by this. And then he gives this, this another double meaning, another what some might call a pun, uh, where he talks about wind. And, and the reality is that both in Hebrew and in Greek, the same word can be used for wind and for spirit. Uh, and so he, when he's been talking about the spirit, and it's, it's, that word is almost always translated spirit in the New Testament, but here he's talking about the wind blowing. And so he says, uh, 
he says the, the point is of this wind blowing wherever, it, he says, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the point here is that the wind can neither be controlled nor understood by human beings, by people who don't know the Spirit, by people who aren't born from above. If I'm not born from above, then all I see is I can, I can maybe see the evidence of this. I maybe see like some outward evidences of that God has done something in this person's life, but I don't fully understand what's going on there. I don't know how that got to be. I don't know what God's going to do next. I am not on the end. I'm not born from above. I'm not part of that family. And so as long as that's going on, he's saying in the same way, when someone is uh, born of the Spirit, they don't know. Uh, when someone is not born of the Spirit, then then it just looks like wind to them. It just looks like it's going where it's going. And I don't know if any of you are meteorologists or whatever, and you're like, yeah, I can kind of predict wind a little bit. But that's yeah, this is before that, so he's not making that point. So, and, and then with someone who's born of the Spirit, then they don't really fit in this world, right? That people who are born from above, when they're put into this world system, they don't, they don't function the same way. They don't have the same incentives, the same sort of self-interest that, that kind of guides and predicts the way that they're going to live their life, but instead they're governed by a new nature. And that new nature, that spirit from above that, that is in them, that affects their desires, leads them to do things that don't really make sense, to pour their life out for other people, to live, to love, and to serve, and to, and to give, and to ultimately worship and glorify God in all of it, and to point people to him. And, and it's something that people can't really make sense of. So you look at uh, Jesus' life and how he lives. Like, he just doesn't fit. People don't have a category for him. And, and he completely upsets the status quo of things, the, the power and all of it. People are like, what is going on? And in the same way you read the, the, the book of Acts, like you see so many stories about how what God is doing through the early church is completely upsetting the, the order of the world at that time. In fact, there's this really cool passage where... Um, there's this, these guys that get this whole city into an uproar as I think Paul and, and whoever's with him come there and he's like, these men who have turned the world upside down, they have come here also. And it's just like, wow, that's cool. Like what God is doing through these people, it's turning things upside down. Uh, and Jesus talks about leveling every mountain, raising every valley. Like there's just this, this, this reality to what, how the spirit functions in the world. And so verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. That's like, that'd be my phobia. If I was like on the Sanhedrin, I'd be like, oh no, I I didn't know what I was supposed to know. He says, verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things. And so there in, in verse 12, you have that similar parallel structure of the, the earthly to the heavenly, the, the here and physical to the spiritual or above. So verse 10, um, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. I don't think Jesus is angry at Nicodemus here because I don't think Jesus is expecting this Pharisee to understand these things that he hasn't seen them understanding, right? Instead, what's abnormal here, instead of Nick, it's, it's pretty normal for Pharisees that Jesus interacts with to not get that. What isn't normal is that Nicodemus, this Pharisee, is coming to Jesus at night. And he's, it seems to be interested, intrigued, like he just can't let go of, of who Jesus is. And so he's coming to him, and Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. I think what Jesus is doing is trying to just gently proddingly, pokingly rebuke Nicodemus and show him, like, look, you don't know what you think you know. 
Like, are you really a teacher of Israel? Do you really, you know? And so I think what he's doing here is he's challenging um, and, and trying to show Nicodemus a little bit of the uncertainty of his identity as this religious leader and teacher of Israel and show Nicodemus that really if he's going to come and enter the kingdom of heaven, he's going to have to completely humble himself and completely be transformed uh, from the bottom up, that he's going to have to totally ask God to, to come in and, and help him. He doesn't just need a, a small course correction to get there. He needs a complete upheaval. So verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So what, why does he say we there? Well, the two main interpretations are either he's talking about maybe his disciples um, or uh, he's talking about, it could be like playful language that he's using for, um, uh, Nicodemus comes to him in the beginning and he says, you know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but it's, it seems like it's just Nicodemus there. And so that he's kind of like maybe hiding behind like his status on the Sanhedrin. And so it could be that Jesus is reflecting that to him. And then one other interpretation there could be that Jesus is also, and this is the one I, I like the most, I don't know if this is true, but that he's kind of talking about him and Nicodemus as teachers. He's saying, are you a teacher? And then he says, we as teachers, this is, how we, this is what we do. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But, but you, Nicodemus, you're not receiving the testimony of teachers. And so however you look at it, the, the point, though, that Jesus is making, it's not so much about that pronoun, but instead it's about uh, the fact that Nicodemus is not, uh, he's not responding to the evidence. He's not responding to the testimony that there that of what Jesus is doing, of what his disciples are seeing and how they're responding and the people who are following him. That Nicodemus, having seen all those things, is not still trying to hold back and not fully humble himself uh, before Jesus. And so he says then in verse 12, If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And it's just that that need for new birth, that need for transformation, it's so fundamental. It's so elementary. It's, it's the entry point for Christianity. You cannot be a Christian and not be completely humbled and transformed by who God is. And if you're not that, if you don't get that, then all you're ever going to see is wind. It's never going to look like more than that to you. And, and even as you go about your Christian life, if you try to pick that pride back up again and, and stick with it and carry it with you and say, I want to I make my life about myself, then as you read the Bible, it's not going to make sense to you. You're going to look at things, and, and it's, it's never going to come together because all of this is going to, you're only going to be seeing these, these earthly things, these, these kind of the, the, the physical uh, manifestations and, and evidences of what God is really doing, but you'll never actually know that God and be experiencing that God and have fellowship with that God who works all of those things. And so what Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus is, look, this is just the beginning. There's so much more that I would show you that I would have in store for you that you could see. But if you can't humble yourself and just accept that you know far less than you think you'd know and that you need God's help, you need cleansing and transformation, you're never going to touch it. You're never going to see it. And so that brings us to our final point, which is that, or sorry, second point, but final of the, the thing. Anyway, when it comes to being transformed, humility is critical and pride is crippling. If you were going to be transformed, we have to humble ourselves and recognize our need for transformation. And if we can't do that, if we hold on to pride, it's absolutely going to get in the way. 
And so this transformation is ultimately an act of God, but when it comes to us hearing and responding to the gospel in order to enter the kingdom, there's some point or another where every Christian has to humble themselves, or every person who would be a Christian has to humble themselves and say, God, I need you. I need your help. I am broken. I am sinful. I am lost without you. I absolutely need you. And we have to ask him to completely and profoundly transform us. And so the question I want to ask you here is how do you approach Jesus? Especially if you're a Christian and you you ever read the Bible, you come to church or Bible study, you pray. What's the attitude of your heart when you approach Jesus? This is a story about Nicodemus, this guy coming and approaching Jesus, but he doesn't come ready to be transformed. He comes thinking, maybe I just need a little bit of a course correction. Do you come to Jesus helpless and absolutely longing for him to, to clean you, to transform you? Do you come to him looking for help, or do you come to him trying to, trying to prove something, trying to show him how good you've done? Because that's not ultimately going to help you. That's not ultimately going to do any good for you. And instead, it's going gonna, it's gonna to detract from you. That pride is going to blind you more to who he is and to all that he has in store for you. And I just want to close with this, this point with this illustration. Um, we're getting around to the time of Halloween, right? And so we've got trick-or-treating. Anybody going to take their kids trick-or-treating? Working on costumes already, maybe? I don't know. But um, I want you to imagine the wealthiest, most generous household right? Especially, you know, kids, maybe you can think about this. What, what is it that you dream of when you go trick-or-treating? Like, you want, the, you want to find just the, the biggest house, and there's they all of the inflatable blow-up Halloween props and everything, and you go up to the, this big door, and they open up, and they got just, they got maybe garbage cans full of candy, and they're all king-size. Like, everything is king-size. It's great. And, and they just, whatever you have, they just fill it up. If you, whatever, whatever kind of bag or basket you bring, when I trick-or-treated as a kid, my dad uh, I grew up in the city, and so he drove us out to like the ritzy suburbs, and we brought pillowcases. And he would drop us off at the corner, and we'd run up to every house, and like they'd fill up our pillowcases, and we'd dump them in the trunk and keep going. Whatever you bring, right? Uh, imagine they just fill that up all the way. How would you approach that house? How would you come if you're a kid and you and you really want candy? You would come with an empty bag, right? You'd come expecting to be filled. That's how we should approach Jesus. Come expecting to be filled. Come empty. Come ready for him to fill you up. Come ready to learn. Come ready to receive from him. Because if you come to Christ and, and, and you're thinking instead, man, I, I've got most of it. I just need a little bit of help here or there. Then he, you're not going to get much because you're not leaving room for him to deeply and profoundly transform you and shape you and fill you with so many good things that he has in store for you. So that brings us to our final section, and we just got three verses left here, so this will go fast. Uh, and that is that this ultimately points to Jesus. And so uh, basically where we're at in this conversation is, is Jesus says, if, if I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can I tell you about heavenly things? And that kind of begs the question, who is this? Who is this person who would tell, who would tell me about heavenly things? Who are you? I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. Who are you that you would tell me about heavenly things? Verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, it's referring to God, and Nicodemus should know this. It's from this prophecy in Daniel, or it's referring to this, this Messiah who's coming. And so it's this big reveal that basically it's becoming clearer and clearer in this conversation that Jesus is talking about himself as someone who has descended or come from heaven. This is God. Who is he talking to? Right? This is God. 
that Nicodemus is talking to. He is descended from heaven. No one would know heaven like he does. Verse 14, Jesus continues, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so that's this story from, uh, I think it's the, the book of Numbers, where uh, there's this, uh, Israel is out, out, they're out of Egypt, they left Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness before they go to the promised land, and Israel has, you know, they've kind of been complaining and rebelling against God, and so God sends these, uh, it calls them fiery serpents, I think that would probably mean venomous, because they're biting Israelites and Israelites are dying. Right, and so they're like, and so that humbles them quickly, and they're like, "All right, Moses, help us, God, God, help us. We need, you know, we need help here. We're, we're sorry, we were wrong." And so, what God tells Moses to do is to set up this bronze serpent or snake, like just this little kind of statue on a pole, and that whoever looks at that is going to be healed. And sure enough, it's this miracle, and that's what happens. People get bit, and then they look at the serpent, and they're saved. But imagine being in that scenario where you're out in the middle of the desert, and you don't have modern medicine and you get bit by a deeply, you know, venomous snake. Like, that's a death sentence. Like, you're, you're going to die. Like, that's it. There's no, it's, I mean, for me, I understand this through, like, zombie movies, because that's, you know, what I watch. But, like, it's the same thing. It's like, you get bit, like, you're in trouble, right? You're going to die. That's it. That's what Jesus is comparing the state of Israel and the world to. He's saying, this is why I'm here. You guys, it's like everyone here has been bit by a venomous snake in the middle of the desert. You are going to die. You need salvation. And, and so then he says, uh, so in the same way must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he's going to be lifted up on the cross as he dies to save the world and dies for the sins of the world uh, for his people and beyond that. And so this, this is then the means of transformation is Jesus. And there's going to be, there's so much here, there's going to be more next week. But basically he's saying just look to him. He, he, he's not come to judge us, he has not come to just you know, look at us and say, wow, you guys need to do better and try harder. No, he has come to save. He has come to be a sacrifice for us so that we could be with him in heaven. Uh, and he's on the cross taking the wrath for your sin. That's why Jesus is here. And so uh, we're going to end our, uh, at, at that verse. We're, I'm not going to go beyond that. And the next one is John 3.16. That's like the famous verse. But there's so much there and beyond that we're going to save that for next week. Um, but I just want to tie this all back together now uh, because this third point, it comes down then to how do you respond to the person of Jesus, right? Nicodemus, at this point, he's, he's starting now to see that really all of this is pointing to Jesus, and he's realizing that this person, this, this rabbi that he thought he was doing a favor for coming to at night, he was fascinated by, but that, you know, he's, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's realizing that he's actually the underdog here. He's coming to God. And so it all comes back to how do you respond to the person of Jesus? What is Nicodemus going to do with this revelation? Uh, because if, if anyone ever asks, if they, if they like what the church does, if they like some of the things that they see in the church or in Christianity, but they don't like the religious part of it or they don't like Christ, and you say, can't we just have Christianity but without Jesus, without the religion, without whatever, you have to understand that all of the good from this faith, it comes from him. Every good thing that we have is coming from God. It all comes back to Jesus pouring out his spirit on us and making us love and serve in the same way that he does. And so if you're asking that question, it just means you haven't met Jesus. It means you don't know how great God is. Uh, and so he's this, he's this person who fascinates you, the sort of person that you go in to meet with, and you go in one way, and you come out completely changed. And so that brings us then to our, our final point, which is that God is uniquely powerful to transform people. 
God is uniquely powerful to transform people, that God the Father gives his Son as the unique antidote for sin, and that he leaves the Holy Spirit behind him to continue to transform us and continue to help us uh, grow to be more and more like him. And so it kind of answers this question, who could fix who could fix human nature? You look at uh, pandemics and diseases, you look at world hunger or global warming or all these problems. What about human nature? Who can change people? That's something that only God uniquely can do. And he has come to do that through Christ. And so where do you look for transformation in your life? Where do you look when you see the, the broken parts of your life, the things that you're like, man, I really need to get this better? Where are you looking? Are you looking to your own kind of you know, 90-day discipline plan? Are you looking to, oh man, if I just get better community around this? Those are helpful things, but at the heart level, to change fundamentally what's going on deep inside you, where do you look? What is on your pole? Because what Jesus is saying is that should be Jesus. That should be him. That he's the one who brings new life, and it's incomparably better. It's so much better. So, To bring it all back, our pride blinds us to who Jesus is and to what he has in store for us. There's so much glory contained in and around us and the things that God is doing in us that if we understand that this is the spirit of God, that this is the word of God, that this is the people of God, and we understand what that means, that it all comes alive with glory and meaning. But the problem is, is that when we allow pride in our lives and our own kind of lack of appreciation for our need for God and our own need for for transformation and for cleansing, what happens is we look at other people and we, we start to compare ourselves to them. We start to think, man, I'm, I don't know, they're, they're down there and I'm up here. And that absolutely blinds us to who God is. You cannot be a Christian who deeply appreciates God if, if you're not also a profoundly humble person. Because that's the way that we can know God. And that's what Nicodemus would have to know and come to see in order to experience God. And the good news is that Nicodemus' story doesn't seem to end here. But he shows up again later in the gospel, sticking up for Jesus in a conversation. And then at the end, at Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus is there helping to bury Jesus, bringing uh, various, you know, whatever, uh, perfumes and things to help prepare his body for burial. And then there's also the fact that John, as he's writing this, this, this gospel, is talking about Nicodemus by name. And so that also may, may be a suggestion that Nicodemus is someone who's, who is known and, and that John wants to reference and show this is what Nicodemus was doing at this time. And this is what God could do even to a Pharisee, even to someone who's got everything it seems going for him as a Pharisee, that God could take someone so high and bring him so low and build him back up again because God is uniquely powerful to transform people. So we need... Deep and profound transformation is, is the first takeaway I have from this story. The second one is that humility is critical to that transformation, but pride is crippling. And then finally, God is uniquely powerful to transform people. And so the question I want, I want to leave you guys with is we're going to move to communion here in a minute, is I want you to be reflecting on where in your life is pride blinding you to who Jesus really is and to all that he has in store for you. Where in your life are, is, is, is your Halloween candy bag too full so that you can't get the better things that God has for you? And is that something that maybe is hard for you to believe right now, that God actually has that? And so as the band comes up, we're going to take communion here, and, and we got it in the, back, in the back and in the front here, and it's an outward symbol of an inward reality of what God has done for us, that the cracker symbolizes Jesus' body broken and the juice, his blood shed for us because God loves you. And he doesn't want you to have to try to struggle uh, uh, 
without any sort of results or anything to try to try to find your way into heaven, but recognize that you need new birth if you're not in Christ. You need to be born from above. And, and likewise, if that's how you started and you're following Christ, that, that's the way to continue forward, is to continue to receive the, the help and, and, and everything that you need from God and that he is powerful to transform you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just pray for whoever here, if anyone here, God, doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that through this message, Lord, that they would come to know you, Lord, that they would uh, just look at what we see about Nicodemus and his interaction with you, that, that we just need transformation, God, and that only you can give it to us, and that you love us, and that you're good, and that you're a God worth knowing and worth serving. And God, I pray, I pray for people here who just aren't living out of a deep conviction of who you are and of your glory. Lord, I pray that they would come to know, I just pray that they would come to see again your glory and how great you are and how good you are and that you are a God worth spending time with, worth following, that you're a God worth coming to empty so that we could be filled all the fuller with your grace and with your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.